Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This episode was sponsored by DesignSpark, design tools and resources for engineers to help make their ideas happen. I'm Thomas. And I'm Shreya. And we are your hosts for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. Before we get started with this week's episode, um, we've got a big shout out to QTech's Technology Venture Conference, which is happening on the 25th of June. The conference will be an open, unconference style, which involves topic-based breakout discussion sessions, as well as inspirational keynote speakers. The overarching theme for this year's TVC is automation, as it continues to revolutionize manufacturing and logistics sectors, as well as healthcare, construction, transportation, and many more. Everybody is welcome to attend this conference, and to find out more and get tickets, visit cambridgetvc.com. For our fifth episode of Q Talks, we are welcoming James and Greg, who are partners at Madison Squire, a legal 500 tier one intellectual property law firm, working across a variety of sectors on patents, trademarks, and many other aspects of IP protection. It will be great to hear their advice on IP matters for startups, an often overlooked part of starting up your own business. So hi, James and Craig. Thank you for coming on the show with us today. If you could introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your areas of expertise, that would be great. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Um, so my name is James Pitchford. I'm a UK and European patent attorney at Matheson Squire. I'm based in our Cambridge office. Um, so I studied physics and material science at Cambridge University as an undergraduate and then went on to do a PhD in the material science department and then joined the patent profession in the year 2000. Um, and I specialize in patent matters in the fields of physics, electronics, engineering, computer software, and material science. Wow. Yeah, so quite a wide range of subject areas, pretty much anything in the physical sciences. And I'm Craig Titmus. I'm also a European and UK patent attorney at Mathis and Squire. I've been in the profession slightly less time than James, in about 10 years. Um, I entered the profession after my PhD here in Cambridge, which is in biotechnology. It was in collaboration with Bayer Crop Science. Mm -hmm. uh, before then, I had an undergraduate in molecular biology and biochemistry from Durham. Uh, so I, I work predominantly on the life sciences and chemistry side of, of the firm. And the uh, majority of my work really involves vaccines, diagnostics, therapeutics, things like that. So, uh, yeah, between between the two of us, we, we tend to cover a, a fairly large uh, amount of innovation. Yes, and we find ourselves collaborating on more and more things, actually, these days, because so many innovations are actually from a, an interdisciplinary area, yeah. um, medical devices, for example, or software that has a medical or diagnostic application. So, yeah, we often work together on, on yeah. cases, don't we? And it's good. So, uh, yeah, Craig does the biotech side of things, and I do the, the physical sciences side. That's really interesting. Yeah. Do most patent attorneys have PhDs or have they done sort of in-depth scientific studies? Is that what it requires to be a patent attorney? Yeah, well, one of the requirements is that you've done a technical degree. Yeah. Um, but uh, I would say about 50% of patent attorneys have PhDs. Okay. 
Yeah, I think it's really good actually to have a PhD if you want to become a patent attorney because you're then used to technical writing and you can write things clearly and you can mm. grasp technical concepts, which is what the job's all about. Yeah. Which leads to the question, what do patent attorneys do? <laughs> so, um, Craig, would you like to yeah. explain a bit? Right. Well, I suppose, uh, in essence, we, we get patents for inventors. Um, really, the, the journey starts with meeting inventors, finding out about their technology and, and really what they're trying to achieve, why they want to protect it, and, and really whether or not it is a protectable idea. Um, assuming it is, then, then we would normally work with the inventors to draft a patent application for them. Uh, we'd file the patent application and then we would argue with various patent examiners uh, that, that their patent application meets the requirements mm -hmm. of patentability. And the, and the main ones so that it's novel and inventive, but we, mm -hmm. we might well get onto that later. Yeah. So now might be a good time to talk about maybe the different types of IP. So you've briefly mentioned patents. So what are the other areas of IP that people might be involved in or examples of where each of those are appropriate? Sure. So just to go back to patents just briefly, so yeah. patents protect technical innovations, mm -hmm. might be new products, new pieces of equipment, new manufacturing processes, new chemical compositions or pharmaceutical compositions and so on. Um, in order to be patentable, an invention needs to be novel and to be non-obvious mm -hmm. in view of anything that's been made public before the filing date of the patent application. So and that's just a very brief overview of what patents are all about, uh, mm. to protect technical concepts, basically. Um, you've got registered designs, um, which protect the appearance of articles, the shape, the configuration of articles. Um, they don't protect the underlying technical concepts, because that's what patents cover, mm. but they do protect the outward appearance of articles. Another type of IP that um, startups and small businesses should consider are trademarks. Mm -hmm. So trademarks protect company names, brand names, logos, slogans, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, Well-known examples are things like Nikon, Kodak, Kingfisher for beer, and so on. Also, in terms of other areas of IP, um, we have things like confidential information and know-how, which are not registered. Uh, they are just technical concepts, business ideas that are kept confidential within a, a company. And those can be very valuable as long as the ideas don't leak out from the company mm -hmm. because the value of those things is all with keeping them confidential. Mm. Um, so they're fine as long as they can be kept confidential and as long as the customers can't reverse engineer the product or competitors can't reverse engineer it. Mm. So it sounds like if you've got one product, there might be different types of IP um, that would cover the various parts of that product. So you were saying the registered design does the sort of design look, the patent does the technology maybe, and the trademark, maybe the logo. And yes, the exactly. So yeah. is that usually how people go about it? If they've got um, a product, how do you then go about protecting all of those different types of IP? Do they do it at the same time or how does that work? Well, some types of IP right arise automatically, and just to add to that list is copyright as well, and, and that, that tends to subsist in things like literary work and artistic work and, and things like computer code as well. So, so for the unregistered IP rights, they just come about. There's, there's nothing that you need to do. Okay. Um, patents, they tend to be filed once 
you've you've reduced the idea to practice and that you you have enough information to to provide a so-called enabling disclosure because part of your uh, patent application has to contain enough technical information for somebody to put your invention into effect so you have to have enough information in there to to make it plausible that it would work in terms of trademarks that tends to be i would say generally comes on a little bit later once people have actually devised their product they've come up with a name typically and um what do you reckon? Yeah, I think patents tend to be the first type of IP that someone would register because, as I mentioned earlier, the patent application is judged relative to anything that's been made public before the filing date of the patent application. Mm. And that includes disclosures by the inventors themselves. So it's really important for the inventors to keep the idea confidential. Mm -hmm and not tell anyone about it until a patent application has been filed. But because most inventors want to tell people about it, and they want to get investment and so on, that means that the first thing they need to do is to file the patent application before any of those other things. Mm -hmm. So it does tend to be the first thing that they do in terms of registering IP is, is to file the patent application. Um, yeah, beyond that, they might then file one or more registered design applications if it's a physical product that has a... A, a new shape or configuration. Mm -hmm. um, the trademark side of things can be left until later. Mm -hmm. I would just add, though, although you can wait later to file the trademark application, it's a very good idea for people to check that a trademark that they're considering using mm -hmm. is actually available for them to use mm -hmm. before they go too far down the line of setting up mm -hmm. their business. Because um, it's important to check that their proposed company name or product name doesn't infringe someone else's pre-existing right. trademark. Um, otherwise, it can be really, emba really embarrassing for a company to launch with one name and then to receive a strongly worded letter from the owner of a registered trademark saying, you are infringing our trademark, you need to rebrand. It just then looks embarrassing. Uh, it doesn't get the company off to a good start. Mm -hmm. uh, the cost of rebranding can be quite expensive sometimes. And yeah. yeah, it just kind of isn't a very good way to start off a company. So I think although you don't need to file a registered trademark application too early, I think doing a clearance search to check that your proposed trademark isn't infringing someone else's is something that needs to be done quite early on. Mm. You, you've already talked about, which I find very helpful, about the right time to think about different mm. sorts of IP. Mm. Can you also give us an indication as to the costs that might be involved upfront or potentially later on? for founders of, of startups if they have perhaps an international ambition? Well, yeah, I think it, in terms of um, patents, uh, the, there's an initial cost associated with drafting a patent application and, and, and those costs can range anywhere from about 3,000 to about 7,000 pounds depending on the complexity of the invention. Mm -hmm. um, a year after the initial patent filing, if assuming you have international ambitions, you would then normally file what's known as a, a PCT application or sometimes referred to as an international patent application. Okay. And uh, at that stage, we would normally look to bring into the patent application any new data that the inventors have generated during that first year or any ideas that they might have come up during that period. 
Um, so filing a PCT application normally costs something in the region of about £4,000. Uh, the patent application then largely goes to sleep for about 18 months, mm-hmm. um, at which point you have to decide uh, which territories you want your international application to enter. So I, I tend to think of it as a sort of holding pattern around an airport. It's sort of in this this space where it's it's sort of in limbo. You haven't chosen which countries you actually want it to enter at that mm-hmm. stage. So come the expiry of your international phase, which is uh, 30 or 31 months after your first filing date, uh, you then choose which countries you want your patent to enter. So that might be the US, Japan, Europe, for example. Right. And uh, there are fees associated with entering those various territories, and, and, and they vary quite considerably um, depending on, for example, whether or not you need to file translations, mm-hmm. things like that, as you do typically for Japan and and. So um, once it's then entered those territories, you, you have to argue uh, with, with patent examiners in those countries, uh, under again, largely under novelty and inventive step, those requirements James was talking about. Then ultimately, you, you hope to achieve grant of your patent, and uh, you would pay a, a grant fee and then uh, renewal fees thereafter to keep, keep the patent alive. And, and you can keep patents alive for up to 20 years from the original filing date. So it's, it's potentially a really powerful type of protection that, that can you know, cover your core ideas for, for a very long time. Mm. So that's patents. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add one thing to that, if I may, which is that, as Craig mentions, you have until 30 months from your first filing date to decide which countries or regions you want to go off into. And f- from that point onwards, the costs do multiply up a bit. But up until that point, they are relatively well defined. Mm-hmm. And that period from your first filing date to the 30-month stage is a very good period for startups and spin-outs and entrepreneurs to try and bring in investment mm-hmm. because they probably will benefit from it from the 30-month point onwards. But up until that point, as I say, the costs are quite well defined, quite well controlled, and that's a good time to test the market to try and bring in investment to to grow the company from that sort of early point. And from a patentability perspective as well, it's that going through the international phase can be really helpful as well because you can get a very quality examination uh, during that time. And normally applications that we file are examined by the European Patent Office. Mm-hmm. So you get to have a, an early indication as to whether or not your patent's actually going to be granted. So if, if it looks really bad, then you, you would decide potentially not to go into the uh, in expensive uh, national phases, so you, you could potentially kill the patent there and save yourselves lots of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some university applicants, for example, will tend to file an initial UK patent application and then an international application and look to see if they can get commercial interest in the invention uh, by the 30-month point. Mm-hmm. And if they can't, then often they pull the plug on it at that point. They don't take it any further. Yes. Um, if they do get commercial interest, maybe someone's looking to set up a spin-out company, for example, mm-hmm. then they will take it forwards in whichever countries around the world they are interested in getting protection in. And, and would you say that patents are the most expensive form of IP? And um, what about trademarks? Yeah, patents other? are more expensive yeah. than trademarks. And um, one thing I, I suppose some founders are worried about is that while they like the idea that they can protect some of their IP, it requires quite a bit of investment to do though. 
but perhaps even more so when then something happens and you then get sued or you need to sue someone mm. that also potentially creates a lot of costs. Can you can you give an indication kind of based on your experience how a typical startup should approach this? Sure. I mean, one thing I would just say quickly, though, is that many investors, most investors actually look for registered IP as an indication that the business is defensible mm -hmm. before they invest in the company. Otherwise, there's no real um, guarantee for the investor that someone else isn't just going to copy the idea and then the investor's money would just be wasted. So so many investors do look for particularly patent protection before they invest. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of ongoing costs in connection with litigation and so on, it all depends on what happens. Um, I mean, sometimes it's just a case of exchanging a few letters, which isn't particularly expensive. If mm -hmm. it goes all the way to court, it would be potentially very expensive. It all depends on the circumstances. And I think it's hard to give any kind of indications of cost in connection with that. Uh, what, what do you think? No, I, I absolutely agree. You can mm. you can arrive at inexpensive solutions or very expensive ones. Yeah. I think generally, if you can arrive at a sort of collaborative outcome, that, that's that's the way to go if you can, um, rather than yeah, litigation or, or potentially trying to knock out somebody else's patent. That can be very expensive. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if you if you can reach an agreement and if that person's patent then remains alive, then then there is still a patent in existence which could, could block out third parties for, from encroaching upon your your technology space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think going to court is always an absolute last resort and actually very rare. Most yeah. most disagreements or um, conflicts between companies are normally able to be resolved without going to court oh, in, in, in the world of patents. So for founders that are looking for advice on what they can do with their IP um, and what is the best route to go down, um, where can they go for a first pass at understanding um, understanding IP better from their com from their startup's perspective? And when they're approaching potential advisors, what should they be looking for in for the better advisors versus potentially the less good advisors, as you guys are probably on the <laughs> one of the best advisors out there. Sure, yeah. <laughs> well, I think in terms of in, impartial, neutral advice, um, UK Intellectual Property Office is a good place to go. Uh, there's a lot of general background information on types of intellectual property on the internet, really, if, if, you, if you dig around a bit. If you're at the university, then you can obviously come to one of our events and we'll, we'll tell you about it. Um, in terms of what makes a good uh, intellectual property service provider, I think that's a difficult one, actually. I, th I think, um, honestly, I think most UK patent attorneys are very capable. Uh, we've all had to pass fairly stringent exams. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, I think largely it boils down to uh, general enthusiasm and understanding for the technology and, and a personal relationship. I think it's a, it is a close working relationship you have with, with your patent attorney. Mm -hmm. And uh, if it's one where um, it, it fosters exciting discussion about your invention and, and you can come up with new ideas as to how you might either develop that idea or, or protect it in, in ways that sometimes the inventor hasn't thought about because, you know, as a patent attorney, you, you often approach this from a uh, fresh perspective. Um, I, I think if, if I were looking for a patent attorney, I, I would uh, I would go from that angle, actually, and see who you like working with. Um, there are other indications. Uh, there's things like the Legal 500 and other 
mm. directories that that rank firms. Um, I should add that Mathis and Squire are top tier in the legal 500. Uh, so you can use that to, to get an indication. But I, I think ultimately it's it's a, a question of you know do you think this patent attorney kind of gets your invention and and would you enjoy working with them? Yeah, you want someone who's knowledgeable in your field of technology. Mm -hmm. And I think you want a patent attorney who is going to ask questions and not just take things at face value. Um, as, as Craig says, when you're preparing a patent application for someone, um, you don't normally just take what the inventor gives at face value and say that that's the invention. You would ask them questions like, you know, which features here are essential features? Which, feature, which features are optional features? What alternative features could you have? You need to get all of this kind of stuff into the patent application. Um, is there a sort of an order of preference in terms of the optional features? Um, how can we define the invention most broadly to cover as many potentially infringing products as possible while still giving a patent claim that's new and inventive? Um, they're, they're all good questions to ask inventors and to, yeah, in order to, to, to maximise the value of the patent for them. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we've already talked about this, so I'm, I'm getting the sense here that, that patents are certainly very important for science and tech-based companies. Um, and we thought, given the importance of patents for many startups, perhaps in Cambridge, but also outside of Cambridge, um, we thought it might be a good idea to kind of sh share with you three typical scenarios and then discuss with you patentability and other relevant IP considerations. Now, the first two scenarios are in the kind of medical space. So I would hand over to my very able colleague, Shreya, <laughs> to kind of raise these two scenarios. Cool. So we've named this game Patent or No Patent okay. <laughs> as, a, as a discussion on patentability, as Thomas has nicely introduced. So the first scenario is in the medical devices area. Um, so I am a founder who has a product called Seashore, spelt with an S rather than a Z, um, which is an electronic sensor that provides better monitoring for epilepsy patients. Um, so... I would appreciate if both of you could discuss with me the patentability of my idea and other sort of IP um, points that I would consider. Sure. Okay, so with the medical device, that could be protected with a patent if it's new and inventive. So the patent would typically cover the actual physical features of the product, the way the sensor part is configured, the way it's connected perhaps to a microprocessor that may carry out some processing steps on the data that's gathered. The trademark, the brand name that you've come up with, Seizure, could yeah. become a registered trademark. Mm -hmm. um, that would be worth doing. And in terms of the outward appearance of the medical device, that could be protected with a registered design. James, do you think you'd have copyright in the code? Yes. Uh, if there's an embedded chip that's running some computer code, then yes, that code would be protected by copyright as well. Yeah. And what would be, so say I have the idea for this product, um, I have a proof of concept in the lab, when would be the right time to go about starting to make this sort of patent process? It would be once you've developed the idea sufficiently to be able to write a fully enabling disclosure in the patent application of how it works. Okay. So how the device is constructed, um, how it actually operates, how it detects epilepsy. 
Um, I think, Craig, from your point of view, you, you would perhaps add that it needs to be plausible in yes, terms of how yeah. it the concept it. of plausibility often comes up, in, particularly in the life sciences and, and chemistry field, um, and uh, in particular where it relates to some sort of therapy or, or diagnostic. So, um, yes, I think in, insofar as... Um, you know, this is supposed to monitor epilepsy patients. It would, it would have to be plausible that it can actually achieve that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, so would that involve <clears throat> clinical trials to demonstrate that? No, you don't have to do clinical trials, no, certainly not for a patent application. Okay. Um, the, the question of plausibility is, is whether or not, based on the patent application and what's out there in terms of sort of common general knowledge, whether or not it's plausible, simply plausible, that, that, the, um, that the invention can do what you say it can. Okay. And in terms of the timescale, so at one end of the kind of window of opportunity, you have when you have actually established how it works in enough detail to enable you to write a fully enabling disclosure. At the other end of the timescale is your planned launch date or publication date of the technology. Mm-hmm. So you need to make sure the patent application is filed before you make the details of the invention public to anyone. So those two extremes kind of define the window of opportunity. Okay, yeah. that's really interesting. Mm. I think within the context of this invention, if, if, if you've actually made your product, albeit in your lab, I think it, you're probably uh, set to go. overdue about okay. filing. <laughs> mm. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so we'll move on to scenario two, which might have some overlap in this field. Um, so we're now looking at a new pharmaceutical drug. Um, I am another founder now that has, mm. we currently own a drug that works as a painkiller. Um, I, in the lab, have chemically modified this drug and have discovered that it now is capable of acting as effective sleep medication. Again, if we can discuss the patentability of this um, and other sort of considerations that we might not have touched upon in the first scenario. Sure. Right. Well, if, if you've come up with a, a totally new drug, then that compound itself is novel and uh, it does something special. So, um, you know, you tick the novelty and inventive step boxes. So just in terms of this new compound, you can also patent the uh, therapeutic use of the compound, uh, which you would seek to do in this case, in, in case there was some uh, prior disclosure that, that actually impacted on the novelty of your compound itself. Mm-hmm. You'd look to get novelty through this this new and unexpected therapeutic use. What's really interesting, actually, in, in this case, so you've you've set the problem as, as being a, a, a new chemically modified drug. What's really cool is if if you have an existing drug and you've identified a new use even of an existing drug, mm-hmm. you can get patent protection for that specific new therapeutic use. Huh. So that, that ties into drug repurposing. So, you know, if, if your current drug works as a painkiller, you've, you've realised that the current drug also works as an effective sleep medication, then, then that in itself can, can be grounds for, for a new patent. Do you have to own the patent to that original drug? No, you don't. No, that's where it gets complicated. So you can end up in a situation where um, a third party has a patent that covers the compound and, and potentially you know, medical uses in general of that compound. Um, you then end up with a patent that covers a specific use of that, albeit uh, in the case of you know, effective sleep medication. Um, so you end up with a, a fairly complicated situation where you have uh, you know, two partially overlapping IP rights and uh, that's where, where you need to go and speak to the other IP holder. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> well, the third scenario is about software. 
So suppose I'm a founder and I have created an AI-based startup that has come up with a program that presents items on online shopping websites according to user behavior. Any IP-related things mm. I need to worry about? Yeah, so in terms of patents, this is very much on the borderline of what is or isn't patentable because in Europe there is an area of excluded subject matter in fact, there are several areas of excluded subject matter. One of those is computer software. But it is possible to get patents for computer software if the invention has a what's called a technical effect or if it provides a technical contribution. Right. What, <clears throat> what that means is a technical solution to a technical problem. So if the software that's running here, the, the actual algorithm, does have a technical effect if it provides a technical solution to a technical problem and it meets the other requirements of being novel and inventive, then it could be patentable. Um, so you say it's to do with AI, and uh, AI algorithms are potentially patentable. They're certainly not excluded as long as they have this technical effect, this technical contribution. Mm -hmm. The business aspects of this, though, to do with shopping and so on, those are also excluded areas of uh, subject matter. You can't get a patent for a business method, for example, or a financial method. Mm -hmm. So in this case, we would need to think quite carefully where the technical aspect of the invention lies. And if I was writing a patent application for this, I would not say too much about the ideas to do with shopping and so on. But I would try and phrase it more in terms of maybe language processing to look at the information that the user enters in terms of their recent shopping preferences. And maybe maybe the technical invention is how that language is actually processed, how it's uh, analysed, maybe with respect to a, a database. So the, the, the technical problem wouldn't be to do with providing a better shopping experience, but it would be a, maybe a, a pattern recognition-based problem or something like that. Um, and the solution that your system provides for that is a more accurate language recognition mm -hmm. algorithm or something like that. It would need to be focused on the, on the technical problem that's being addressed and how the invention provides a technical solution to that. Yeah, we, we quite often find this, actually, that in the field of, of computer software, you need to actually reframe the problem aside from what the inventor thought it was to do with. So as, as you said, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it could be used to do with shopping, but actually the, the patentable invention here would be more to do with maybe language processing or I'm, pattern uh, recognition, something like that. Uh, I, I, I don't know if that answers your question. but oh, it's very interesting. And it, in yeah. fact, it, has, it has triggered another question, <laughs> which is, so suppose it's software and assume that it's patentable. Is it uh, always advantageous to kind of go for the patent? Yeah, path, that's a really good question. Or would you rather use something else? A yeah, lot, yeah, a lot of people that are yeah. in the software space have heard don't tend to yeah. patent. So yeah, so many software inventions actually reside on the back-end server in practice. And if that's the case, then you may be better off actually keeping the details of the invention confidential. So the, the, the reasons are that if you decide to pursue a patent application, 
as we mentioned earlier, you would need to file a fully enabling disclosure of how the invention works. So a full description of how this AI algorithm actually operates. Um, the patent application will then be published as a routine part of the application process after 18 months from your first filing date. So from that point onwards, anyone can see how your invention works because they can inspect your published patent application. Mm. But there's no guarantee that you'll get a patent granted at the end of the process. You've, you've told the world how to carry out the invention, mm. but particularly in this borderline area where you, know, you need to argue for technical effects and so on, there is no guarantee that you'll get a patent granted at the end of the day. So as long as third parties can't reverse engineer what you're doing by inspecting the actual app or website and so on, then you may be you may well be better off keeping it as confidential information. Mm. As long as you can trust your employees not to leak the details, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, we quite often find that in the computer software area. Mm. Um, if it's on the back-end server, if it's some sort of clever algorithm that works there. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So broadening it out into both sort of physical and life sciences tech area, um, how do you recommend founders to have a successful patent claim? What, do they, what are the steps that they need or the sort of tick boxes that people look for? Well, I think you need to think in detail about what you're trying to achieve from your IP. You know, if you're if you're taking on the expense of filing a patent application, you need to be pretty clear about what it is you're actually trying to cover from a commercial perspective, not not simply an academic perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, as James mentioned before, trying to identify what are the you know can't live without features that you need in your your patent in order to uh, to make the invention work. That that's really important because then you end up with a, a very broad patent claim of a very broad monopoly um, with uh, features in it that don't permit an easy workaround. So in terms of getting useful and broad patent protection, that's that's a very important thing. And, and that's something that would normally come out from a discussion with a patent attorney. I think, yeah, in terms of thinking forward about how you might develop your patent, rather develop your technology, uh, that, that's a, a useful thing to do. I mean, you have to bear in mind that, you know, mm. the, the lifetime of a patent is very long mm. and uh, what, what you're trying to capture today um, needs to, as best you can predict, capture your technology, for, you know, for the next 20 years. Yeah. So really thinking in detail about how, how you might think about modifying it and, and really drilling down to those sort of core essential features that you really need in order for the invention to work. Yeah, the other thing I would add to that is to make sure you have as comprehensive a disclosure of the invention as possible in the patent application, to describe it in as much detail as possible with alternatives and optional features and so on. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good point, actually, and particularly for um, on the life sciences and, and chemistry side of things. Certain territories, you know, like Europe, for example, that they tend to allow some um, variation in terms of uh, of what they will grant. So let's say you had, I don't know, a, a DNA sequence. You, you, were, you were trying to patent something around a DNA sequence. You might try to uh, achieve some sort of, sort of wriggle room in the sequence. You might try to allow for, you know, 10% wriggle room, specifying 90% sequence identity, for example. Mm -hmm. and, and you can typically get that sort of claim in Europe, but, but some territories like Japan and China can really push you towards what you've exemplified in your patent application. Mm -hmm. So if those territories 
are of interest, then then it can be very helpful to at least provide some actual disclosure and 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 some um, experimental support for those those variants if if that's really what you want to try and cover. Mm. Mm. No, I think that's extremely helpful. And we have talked about when is the right time to file a patent and other IP. We've talked about when and why you shouldn't perhaps do some things. Yeah. Now, at, at the end of this podcast, kind of both Ray and I were wondering, you must have come across some really weird, cool stuff in your time as patent attorneys. What are some of the things you've come across that you can share with us today? Well, I think one of the inventions I've most enjoyed working on has been a very beautiful reclining chair uh, for a local Cambridge-based inventor that has the most amazing recline mechanism, which we managed to get patented in a number of countries around the world. And it gives the feeling of weightlessness to the user. So you, you lie back in this chair, it reclines back, it's beautifully pivoted, and it just takes all the stress out of your body and it moves with the body as well you can if you if you come forwards it inclines forwards if you if you lean back it it reclines back and it's it's perfectly balanced to the person's body so they can have that feeling of weightlessness and it's been a, a fascinating piece of work to be involved in um, and our client is looking to sell this in many countries around the world and I understand that there's already a lot of interest and it's a really nice product. Sounds like I could Be do with this chair. It's a, it's, a, <laughs> it's a beautiful thing, it's made of leather, it's beautifully uh, assembled, lovely uh, machined metal components, it's a really lovely thing. Very nice. Yeah. Have you come across I've, anything I've been, interesting Craig? Yeah, I've come up, yeah, too, too many to narrow down really, that's one of the nice things about this job. You know, you get to see all sorts of very interesting technologies. Um, you know, I've been very lucky over the years to work on all sorts of pretty cool vaccines, you know, to do with Ebola and things like that, which was very exciting during the Ebola crisis. Um, well, interesting diagnostics. Uh, but I, I think actually in terms of the, probably the coolest idea I've worked on, it was a, a, a company called Colorifics and, uh, and and their technology is really exciting. It's, it's, it's in the sort of clean tech space. It's to do with um, environmentally friendly ways of, of dyeing fabrics and, uh, and their technology has been employed um, by uh, the likes of uh, Stella McCartney and I think they've got some fabrics certainly at the moment displayed in the V&A in London oh. um, and, and their invention is, all relates to um, the use of bacteria to um, synthesise and, and, and produce dyes in their bodies mm. and then they change the conditions uh, such that the bacteria sorry i should should add that the fabrics are included in the mixture they then change the um, the environmental conditions that, that causes the these bacteria to become long and spindly mm -hmm. and they kind of get entangled within the fabric and uh, they cause then the, the the bacteria to burst and they deposit this uh, this dye directly into the fabric And that avoids, avoids the use of some really nasty chemicals and, and huge amounts of water that are used in, in sort of existing uh, dyeing industry. So that I think on, on many levels, I think that's a really, really exciting invention and uh, one I hope we'll all get to uh, enjoy in the future. That's very impressive. I must admit, secretly, I was hoping for more scandalous experience. <laughs> so I, for instance, I read about a guy in Australia, I think, who managed to patent the wheel 
But that hasn't happened here in Cambridge, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, various patent offices uh, apply, you know, different levels of scrutiny. I'm not sure that the, the same would apply in Australia now, um, but I think historically Australia used to have a, a slightly different um, standard for assessing inventive step. This is going back quite a long way. Um, but by and large, yeah, things like perpetual motion yeah. machines and wheels and things like that tend, tend not to be patentable subject matter. Yeah. <laughs> there are some countries that don't actually examine novelty and inventive step in patent applications. South Africa, for example, you just file the patent application and mm. basically it, it gets granted for whatever claims you put in. Huh. Um, the actual validity of the claims is only assessed if the um, patent is used in litigation subsequently. Huh. So you can get anything granted in South Africa. Huh. Well, good to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Thank yeah. you, James and Craig, for coming on the show with us. We've really enjoyed uh, your time and your expert knowledge in IP. So thank you very much. Oh, you're thank welcome. You. It's been great thank to you. be here. Thank you. I found that a really interesting discussion on IP mm. and especially what James and Craig were discussing in terms of that investors really do look for proof of registered IP as an indication of a defensibility of a startup. And they mentioned that the first 30 months are a really important period for getting investor relations. Mm -hmm. I thought I thought it was really interesting. And I took away from it that patents are, are really important, but also that there are other IP tools and that it's very important to consider when and perhaps when not to use IP as a, as a tool and strategy as part of your startup. Mm, yeah, that's very true. So thank you once again to James and Craig for joining us on QTalks. Um, this podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And thank you to everybody behind the scenes for helping us. Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme or tell us about your experiences in applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks. And remember to get buying tickets for the TBC 25th June.